For July 9th, 2012, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 210, Too Extreme for Derrida. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, from Los Angeles, though, uh, as we record, though I'm probably not in Los Angeles as we, we release this, where in the world is Matthew Rather? Uh, that's me, here with a panel of overthinkers, and for the first time in the history of the show, uh, a panel of commenters, prolific uh, commenters from the Overthinking It site. We thought we would do a, um, find a kind of a, more of a structured way for uh, voices uh, from the huge community and awesome community of commenters to be integrated into the show uh, rather than the kind of catch-as-catch-can way that we'd been doing it. And so we thought uh, one thing we could do is sort of a periodic roundtable with uh, with people who are part of the community on the site. So we are pleased to welcome many of them uh, here today as well as uh, the usual panel of overthinkers. So uh, it is a full house and let's get right to it question of the week panel both guest and regular panel question of the week uh in honor of some of the the uh the topics the discussion topics that we have brainstormed uh before beginning what is your favorite instance of bad acting in popular culture bad acting overacting take it how you will uh First in the alphabet, returning to the podcast, it's Ben Adams, who comments on the, the site under the, uh, the nom de comment, uh, crazy like a fox, right? Right. Yes. Uh, ben, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be here. Thank you. So my answer is, uh, I, I'm thinking Denise Richards from uh, The World is Not Enough, the Pierce Brosnan nice. Bond movie. Oh, nice. <laughs> Because that's the movie that asks us to believe that she is the savvy nuclear physicist or nuclear engineer or something along those lines who is American but also working in Russia. Um, and it just goes from there. And that's, that's a, it's an underrated Bond movie with absolutely horrible acting on her part. So I'm going to go with that one. Excellent. To which uh, I respond, Ben, why not? Why can't you be? <laughs> This is America. Anything's possible. I mean, that's really the quintessential, like, essential, you know, brilliant scientist in a tank top running around part, right? That, like, defines the subgenre. Yeah, strong, I mean, strong female character. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, excellent. Uh, Gabrielle Arrowwood is next to comments under Gab on the site. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. Very glad to um, have you. But my answer would have to be the entire cast of the Super Mario Brothers movie, because <laughs> I think I well, for, based off the discussion early, like before the podcast started, I was thinking of it more in terms of like really trying hard in a bad script, first maybe, and so like that movie is just so much fun because it's so bad, and I must watch it like every other month and. Uh, so that immediately jumped to my mind because there's just so much fun going on in that and everything that's going on with those characters. And Dennis Hopper, you know, where's the rock? And, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> we should, we should, yeah, we should use that as a theme. Where's the rock? Uh, <laughs> hey, Gab, when you said that it jumps to mind, was that an intentional uh, uh, reference to one song called Jump? I can't remember which one that was, I believe, associated with the movie. You know, because that's what you do in Super Mario Super Mario World is you jump a lot. <laughs> it, it wasn't inten- intentional, but uh, I'll go with that. That works. All right. Boing, boing, <laughs> boing. Uh, from across the pond, Tim Swan joins us, who comments on the site under the name Tim Swan. I think it's technically my writer's name, Timothy oh, J. Swan. Oh, Timothy J. Version, Swan, right. Because, you know, I have to posh myself up. Uh, of course. And Tim is also, I should say, the host of the Psychomedia podcast on the internet. Oh, yeah. Do visit psychomedia.wordpress.com and stop my co-host getting angry at me for all these podcasts I've been on without mentioning it. Um, yes, uh, my favorite uh, instance of bad slash overacting, there can only really be one choice for this, and that's Gordon's Alive! Brian Blessed as Vulton in Flash Gordon. Perhaps the greatest <laughs> bad movie ever created. 
uh, the fact that there is no sequel to it is actually a source of great disappointment to me because it's absolutely brilliant. Actually, everyone in it is both acting badly and acting brilliantly. But Brian Blessed has made a career out of the sort of terrible overacting with no subtlety, no range, and yet still being completely kind of loving and wonderful. It must be quite odd to be married to him, as indeed one woman is. Thank you very much, Tim. Okay, the, now the, the panel of uh, regular overthinkers, Pete Fenzel, bad actor. Hey! hey. Oh, man, I was, I was surprised that uh, our guest didn't pick any of the super-duper obvious ones. I'm, I'm, I'm glad of that. Uh, but I, so I picked one that was kind of outside the box, knowing that no one else would pick it. Uh, and this is a performance that I just get giddy with glee when I watch, which is uh, MC Hammer as Dexter Kane. Uh, in the movie, in one of my favorite B-level movies, which has three different names. Uh, one of the names is uh, One Man's Justice, one of the names is One Tough Bastard, and one of the names is North's War. And it's a Brian Bosworth action movie that was released on uh, straight-to-video and DVD several times from 1996. And MC Hammer plays uh, sort of a kingpin gangster who is uh, called upon to uh, engage in an elaborate hit on the FBI during a softball game. Uh, that is, in fact, a trick to get the FBI to kill him. And there's this scene where uh, uh, the villain comes into MC Hammer's, like, like sort of domicile, which is, like, not very posh because they don't have a lot of money, but, like, he's sitting like just this regal monarch, right? Like, sort of with his fingers sort of fatly in front of his face, like, flashing his rings. And every time someone says something to him, he, like, hefts his head with his neck heavily up off his shoulder and repositions it onto the other shoulder, staring at him ever so intently as he's surrounded by people who have no facial expressions, like, giving them arbitrary orders. Uh, it's, my, it's probably my favorite sort of kingpin performance, um, and also my favorite acting performance that seems driven entirely by love and not at all by technique or skill. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, uh, there's a whole level of badness, right? Uh, a whole new level that comes when, when things are driven by love, like things that are authentically bad, things that are, you know, really, really lovingly crafted and bad, um, yeah. are special, right? Yeah, this is true. Like popsicle stick picture frames, you know, like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, happy father's day. Happy father's day. <laughs> Sorry, that's topical. We don't know when this is coming out. It's maybe father's day or not. Uh, it's uh but we're recording on father's day. Those are the tones of Mark Lee. Mark favorite bad acting. All right. I'm going to go with wing commander three, heart of the tiger. Not necessarily because it is the worst <laughs> acting, but because uh, the acting is, bad enough and also i love that game i just want to take any opportunity that i can to mention it um for those of you who don't remember uh wing commander started out as you know a uh, a space flight simulator game yeah, because uh, everyone, with... everyone knew at one point right mark the people who don't know about <laughs> must have all forgotten about it <laughs> anyway sorry continue yeah, well, yeah wing commander is by no means you know in uh <laughs> like at the forefront of the pop culture uh, zeitgeist and sad to know right anyways a flight, space flight simulator game the first two uh, you know, had a, you know had a sort of plot going on with hand drawn characters and voice actors, but Wing Commander Three featured uh, I guess you could call them A list actors like Mark Hamill, Malcolm McDowell, John Reese Davies, and uh, Tom Wilson as Maniac. Um, also, uh, former porn star Ginger Lynn Allen can't forget her. Um, but uh, was groundbreaking in its use of uh, quote unquote A list actors in full motion video uh, to advance its plot. And uh, the acting in the context of it being that uh, groundbreaking use of full motion video and it being a video game uh, wasn't so bad. Uh, but, uh, you know, it can still be characterized as bad when compared to the larger oeuvre of acting and the roles that these fine actors uh, have played. Uh, so that qualifies it to uh, allow me to mention it on the podcast. We come in at three. Heart of the Tiger. Uh, and when it comes to terrible video game acting from that perspective, I got to go with Kari Wurher as Agent Tanya from Red Alert 2. <laughs> but uh, from also from Sliders. But yeah, man, Heart of the Tiger was boss. I really enjoyed that game. <laughs> yeah. uh, a true story. I cried at the end. I cried at the end. At the, at the, end, at the bitter end of the Kilrathi War. Lots of, uh, lots of wingmen uh, falling. Uh, the best bad video game acting, I would have to say, uh, comes from, at least in my kind of awareness, a Star Wars game uh, where someone had been brought in to impersonate Ewan McGregor, but had clearly never seen Ewan McGregor in Star Wars <laughs> because he did him with his accent from train spotting. It was absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Just this strong Scottish accent coming in. You haven't learned anything, Anakin. 
Yeah. That's I think thing. it was the first Resident Evil game. Uh, the English dub of that, like, you, being a master of the lockpick, must take this lockpick with you now. And, oh, man, that one was, I would really laugh hard playing that one. And I was only, like, sixth grade. And I knew it was really terrible. I, I think we'd, we'd need a whole separate podcast for for video <laughs> video game acting, right? Though yeah. it though it, uh, I mean, I think as more and more entertainment kind of comes in interactive forms, I think that the probably the standards of that genre will, um, I uh, you know will will rise. I, I'm going to go uh, with a film that I've returned to many times on this podcast and in other conversations. It's my benchmark movie. Uh, which is a term defined by Pete Fenzel as a movie where every good thing about it is balanced out by a bad thing about it. Uh, that's not how I. That's not how I define it at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, then I, like every time we bring this up, there's a long conversation about how to define a benchmark movie. <laughs> Sorry, which that's is apparently how, how we define a, a, a benchmark movie. Pete, what, <laughs> what, is, what is the official? How definition? I define a benchmark movie <laughs> is every movie better than it is good, and every movie worse than it is bad. Right, uh, but it is itself is neither good nor bad. But anyway, but, oh, sorry. sorry I, so, okay, so I, I was trying to define it intrinsically. That is to say, it's, it's a movie that is at the kind of the zero point, or the point exactly between the green and red on the gauge, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And mine is The Fifth Element. Uh, that that, um, that defines this kind of uh, spot where better movies are good and worse movies are bad. And uh, the, the best bad acting for me is Tommy Tiny Lister as President Lindbergh uh, in, in that film. Uh, not because um, his performance is totally untethered from any kind of natural or sort of psychological reality or uh, anything like that, uh, but because he comes into this kind of extremely uh, maximalist aesthetic, this kind of farcical, everything is bouncing off the walls, kind of fairy tale, uh, very visually crazy movie, with a performance borrowed from the, like, the Kevin Costner, Vin Diesel minimalism school uh, of kind of mumbling your lines without any uh, discernible facial expression or inflection. Um, and it 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 is a glorious it is a glorious thing because I think the the film uses him to comment on uh, you know the state of of politics in this in this future um, future dystopia. He also I think he was the guy who threw the detonator out the window in uh, in the Dark Knight. Yeah, he's, he's yeah, the same guy. Yeah, he was. Debo uh, from Friday. Yep. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, why why are we talking about bad acting, Tim? Why, uh, g- give us a, a a clue here. Uh, well, the reason we're talking about bad acting is because, uh, despite my claims to the contrary, I'm a bad writer, and uh, I had an idea about uh, the overacting and the bad acting that appears in the two shows. Uh, more linked than maybe you might realize desperate housewives and twin peaks separated by 20 years and uh united by carl mclaughlin and brenda strong but um i didn't really think i could figure out how to hone it into an article so i thought i know i'll talk about it with my voice because that works a lot better and this whole idea i wanted to call it something like the theater of the hyper real um this idea that when we overact, this does something that either makes us realize that something is immensely real or it alienates us. So there's kind of two choices there that we have that can, um, for example, in Desperate Housewives is, in theory, a soap opera that reflects vaguely real-life situations and sort of every woman and every man characters, barring certain clashes and ethnic issues. But hey, that's not fun to talk about. Um <laughs> But, um, and whereas Twin Peaks, which is a sort of play on the soap opera genre, and I think Desperate Housewives is as well, it's just using irony, whereas David Lynch is using something slightly different to what Mark Cherry uses. Twin Peaks includes, actually, within the show, a soap opera within the drama uh, in the early part of this series that's where everyone is slightly more hysterical, slightly more emotionally reactive than they 
probably would be but then it, that gives you the sense of this place has made them the weird things that happen in twin peaks which are strange and constant and innumerable um have made them into this completely um overwhelmed mess of a community and i think it's interesting the almost reflection of fairview which is a bright uh paradise in a sort of could be anywhere in america really it seems uh any suburb of a nice ish city with relative middle class affluence where oh anyone could be at home but then there's darkness beneath the surface as opposed to twin peaks which is isolated um and scary and terrifying but actually quite welcoming to anyone with any sense of goodness in them so i quite wanted to see what other people thought having seen one or other of those shows about what the impact of the acting is and maybe am i inferring something when really it's just you know david lynch does slightly hysterical performances and mark cherry did an unsettled soap opera (laughs) yeah in other words you could be overthinking this but (laughs) yes exactly um and uh, yeah, as a side note, if anyone has any thoughts having seen the finale or indeed just much of Desperate Housewives on the cosmology of it, I think that's quite an interesting thing This uh, to explain. Sort of spoiler warning, but not really, because it kind of comes up in the very first episode. Your afterlife in Desperate Housewives as a ghost is quite specifically to watch and narrate the actions of your former living companions and... Um, it's made more clear in the final episode that the the whole kind of fate is to watch and narrate and yet know that your narration will have no impact on the actual actions of the actors in that scenario. Wow, that's that's Sisyphean, right? Like because you, we think of narration as being kind of in, an intervention in a in a cultural discourse. Like stories have a moral, you know what I mean? We tell we tell stories in order to make a difference, in order to make sense of things, in order to like affect some sort of change uh, in ourselves or in the audience or in in the world. And the idea that you are sort of spinning, uh, you're sort of spinning stories uh, nowhere to go. That's that's Sisyphean, isn't it? Yeah, it's terrifying. I think it's a, you know, reminds me of um, A Christmas Carol, except without Marley getting to say anything to Scrooge. He says, I've watched you for seven years Mm -hmm. and longed to speak to you. And I think that's what it seems like Mark Cherry is playing on. It makes the show very dark, really. And I think this idea of, yeah, darkness beneath the surface, as opposed to quite obvious darkness, intrigued me. And it might just be, yeah, again, that I've been watching the shows at the same time, but I think... There has to be something said for using, as I say, this overacting to create an impression in people that this is something very um, close to them and very familiar. The impression I get is that people should recognise themselves in the characters of the Desperate Housewives. All all right. Okay. So to, to to our visiting podcasters, this is your ultimate test as overthinkers. If you haven't seen this show... You need to figure out how to engage Tim in conversation about it. Oh, well, I mean, you can monologue if you want. By all well, means. yeah, but, but it's, it's interesting because I think that, in, I mean, also this is a useful skill in any sort of context where you're talking about popular culture, right? Because part of why it's popular is we talk to each other about it. Um, and there's so many times when you're, you know, at work or at school and someone's talking about something that they've seen and you haven't. And so it's like, well, what kind of questions can we ask Tim to indicate interest in the subject without indicating <laughs> knowledge of the subject? <laughs> it's sort of our own kind of bad acting and hyper-reality, right? We're like, we're sort of inventing a realer-than-real conversation about Desperate Housewives. <laughs> so, yeah. So any, any takers from our, from our guests here? Any, anybody who wants to step up and try to engage Tim in some conversation here? Well, I would just speculate as to whether, if we're thinking about the internal premises of each show, they're both based off of, in some way, a kind of shady death, right? Because Twin Peaks is about the investigation of a murder. And I believe in the pilot of uh, Desperate Housewives, a woman commits suicide, and then it's narrated by, by her. And that woman in the pilot was played by the actress who played Laura Palmer, the girl who was killed in... Um, Twin Peaks. Dun, 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 right? So um, perhaps maybe like within the world of each show, some of this overacting is done by the characters as a way of sort of 
diffusing speculation about those circumstances. Does that make sense? Okay, so if everyone's a little bit mad, no one can ever really be blamed for a murder. Yeah, or even just to distract from the murder or suicide itself. Like, there's all this other stuff going on, so let's forget about that for now. It is kind of a downer. I mean, we have to be we have to be frank about it, right? Like, you can't spend the whole show talking, oh, no, who killed the girl in the Twin Peaks? Oh, man. Like, people fatigue of these things. That's well, why they that have that what... famous, like, go-kart episode of Twin Peaks, right? <laughs> but just ride on go-karts to play laser tag. But anyway, yeah. That, that, like, if they did an episode, that wouldn't be too weird. You know, there's an episode with a dwarf dancing in a dream for some reason. Yes. That's very plot significant. <laughs> uh, fire, yeah, anyone who hasn't watched that me, show, yeah. get the DVD. It's, oh, well, so it's, that's, that's yeah, okay. I, have, I have questions, Tim, about how it holds up, but I, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to take away from our our uh, commenter panel. Ben, I know you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I was going to uh, go a little hot, go a little metaphysical with the with the explanation, the overacting. At least that in, is in always that is always a way to go <laughs> when you don't know the show. You you know what I mean? You get metaphysical. I, I don't know how this theory works with uh, Twin Peaks, but uh, in Desperate Housewives, you know, we're we're kind of in the same position as the narrator. You know, we're watching this, we're talking about it. We can't affect it, so maybe the the overacting is is some every everything you see in the afterlife seems overacted. That anybody watching anything going on after their death, it's going to seem crazy and overacted because in comparison to your drab existence everything seems crazy so maybe that's that's some sort of metaphysical comment there or maybe you uh, maybe as a you know as a ghost you have many more important things on your mind right like the you know state of the universe and you know of the the deity and the whole uh uh, you know the whole metaphysics of it, and you know you can't be bothered with uh, with these minute minute mysteries. So it seems it seems uh, way overheated to you. Of course, yeah. I mean, the metaphor of the external watcher is more exemplified by aliens in uh, Twin Peaks, but they're very kind of spectral, spiritual aliens who appear in visions to people temporarily, and there is such thing as some kind of kind of demonic presence as well uh and a sort of afterlife beyond this earth plane which is all kind of located within twin peaks they think that the door to kind of the other side whatever that means and it's framed in very um seemingly native american terms by the main native american character that it is the white lodge which they are all kind of seeking for that the answer lies in twin peaks Mm -hmm. So it certainly could have this overflow impact into the characters. Can we back the truck up here for a second? Um, Because I know next to nothing about Twin Peaks other than sort of what we've talked about to this point and like seeing a couple clips on on YouTube. Um, So it's a surprise when I heard that there are aliens in this show, as in space aliens. Uh, Yeah. And then David Duchovny turns up to investigate them. But he is a uh, transgender post-op person. Wait, I, I can't tell if you're being serious or not. One hundred percent serious. Wow. Nothing I can tell you about this show I could make up. Although I was, I have been tempted watching it to kind of come up with a Twitter feed like the Star Trek Next Generation season eight one that oh, is just yeah. like do that, do that. Twin Peaks season three, or possibly like lots of cancelled shows next season. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's stop recording this podcast and just start <laughs> writing from that Twitter handle. No, okay. So another question I have is: there anything? Uh, similar to that in Desperate Housewives that takes on that role. Please tell me there are aliens, extraterrestrial species inside of Desperate Housewives. Please. I mean, unless you count the appearance of Dron Barrowman as his character, Jack Harkness from Doctor Who, which I personally do, but I mean, if we're talking about canonicity, I imagine that doesn't really count. Then no, not really. There's lots of stuff that is absurd, but it never, barring the presence of ghostly figures but in a afterlife way that cannot be speculated upon by the main characters actually having said that in the last series there is a sort of appearance of the narrator the narrator appears as a ghost almost to one of the characters Mm. um but it could well be just the character hallucinating imagining um it's not made clear because actually what she says to do as the ghost is something quite she basically is trying to convince one of the characters to kill themselves mm. because it is better to be on the other side. And yet when she is speaking definitely as herself, she really strongly suggests it's not better to be on the other side. So it's hard to tease apart. 
I mean, unless her idea is, I'm getting lonely here. My four best friends have moved on from my murder after season one of this show, and I still have to narrate their lives, and I want to get them on the other side, but I won't admit it to the viewers. Right, and so she says, she says, fire walk with me, and... So this is like when your friends move to like Indianapolis and it's like, it's the best. You totally need to move to Indianapolis. Not to be mean to Indianapolis. It's so livable. But, uh, the city yeah, is so exactly. livable. Such high quality of life. Definitely. Do you want to know how much I pay for my two bedroom apartment? $25. <laughs> and that was to buy it, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, so, okay. So here's another strategy for how to, I didn't realize that this episode was going to be a how to, a kind of like a rough guide to overthinking uh, and how to sound, you know, reasonably knowledgeable about, about something you actually know nothing about, but uh, you get the original, speaker to define their terms so what do we mean by overacting or bad acting in the first place right um what is the what is the standard of acting that we are uh judging by that you know if it doesn't conform to this standard it's bad and um is that standard the same throughout all entertainment or does it change uh from property to property i'll jump on that that last thing i think it it definitely changes from property to property. It has or at to, least right? my tolerance, my tolerance for it changes from property to property. <laughs> you know, if uh, if I'm watching a you know cheesy action movie or something along those lines, my uh, my expectation of the the overacting is a little bit less than if I'm watching something supposedly you know Oscar bait type movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, when you sit down for something like I, I went to see The Expendables, uh, you know, with a friend of mine, and uh, w- we were. No, we were hoping it would be bad. I mean, the the idea is that it's bad from the point of view of, I mean, I should say that it's a friend of mine from drama school and, you know, we spend our days like in pursuit of like, you know, deeply felt naturalistic acting and like, you know, you're hoping to throw that whole book out the window and see, you know, Stallone or something say, you know, do this, do these grandiose over the top things that have no, uh, no relation to any sort of psychological reality that you, that you know. Uh, and then Mickey Rourke in the middle of the damn movie gives this like very stirring speech about like the horrors of the horrors of war and the things that he's seen uh in his time as an expendable um totally out of left field we we didn't see that coming but uh you know uh someone else what is good acting what is what is bad acting anyway that was the patrick stewart moment right (laughs) what do you mean (laughs) the you know the earnest proper acting in the midst of something that isn't as shakespearean uh, sure, right. Uh, yeah, he he is very earnest and very grandiose. And I, you know, I could talk about Patrick Stewart's acting um, uh, for hours and hours, having just watched all, rewatched all seven seasons of Star Trek: The Next Generation on Netflix. But that's probably another podcast, <laughs> or four, or five. A whole series, yeah. Um, I I think in general, my expectation for acting is you need to act for the movie that you're in. Like if you're in a movie that's not taking itself seriously. Don't really take your performance seriously and just have fun with it. Whereas if you're in a more like highbrow, sophisticated movie, kind of fit that. And you can even satirize that within itself, too. Like I'm thinking of uh, The Road to Perdition. Uh, like Daniel Craig's character, I felt like he was like pushing it really, really far to a point where it was almost a caricature, but it worked in that setting, I suppose. And so, like, for, like, The Fifth Element, you know, obviously that movie, it is laughing at itself the whole time, and you can tell that that's what's going on with the actors in there, too. And I think that's part of why that movie is so good but bad at the same time. Yeah, well, it's a, my contention is that it is neither good nor bad. It's simply... It, well, right. It, it is okay. the great... It is the great... Uh, it is the great zero... Uh, you know, uh, which which sounds like an insult, but I really don't mean it. I really don't mean it that way because I enjoy it. So let me let me pipe in here and say that uh, when we say talk about overacting, at least I'm, I'm not sure about bad acting. Overacting we often equate with what uh, emoting to a very high degree, right? Which seems for some reason inappropriate for the scene. And the Captain Picard example came up earlier, right? When we say, for example, there are four lights. 
Uh, I mean, is that fair to call that overacting? And when I say that, uh, and I say that, and as one example of it, but you go to another end of the spectrum of that uh, uh, emoting with a lot of emotion. And let me use an example: I drink your milkshake. I like anybody would ever accuse Daniel Day Lewis of overacting in that, right? So what separates, you know, uh, there are four. Mr. President, that's not entirely accurate. (laughs) Okay, so challenge that. It's not, yeah, I think it's not not overacting. It just happens to be glorious, right? Oh, yeah, that's true, that's true. And the level of, I I think actually the level of kind of like gloriousness, right? Like that, and and that's a terrible, I'm true Scotsmaning because I'm, you know, you know, I'm just moving the goalposts, but like the, the, um, uh, yeah, the, but consider there are four lights. I mean, like one of the reasons we consider it bad is because it's, it's taken, it's taken way out of context, but in the, the context of that episode, the famous two-parter where Picard and, uh, Crusher and Worf go on a uh, mission deep into a covert mission, deep into Cardassian space, uh, Picard is captured and is tortured by the, uh, the Cardassian guy by having, you know, the torture machine implanted in his um in his you know body cavity or wherever they implant the torture machine right like um having survived these uh weeks and weeks of uh of torture he is finally released and his um you know this is his triumphal moment <laughs> over his captors uh to uh, over his captor and his torturer to say that in fact though you have been uh psychologically torturing me and and physically torturing me and uh, insisting that i say there are f- uh, five lights there are in fact four like given that you know i don't know huge 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 uh emotional moment that he's he's undergoing is it really uh, overacting and i think right this is this is one of the the problems like what is the standard you know what i mean where is the uh what is the standard that you judge by right like is it a, a little bit overheated with respect to the rest of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, it's a it's a much higher temperature, but I and the and the level of acting and emoting that you often see from the rest of the cast. Yes, yeah, yeah. That he is in a yeah, yeah. That he seems like he's in his uh, he's in a show by himself. <laughs> but like, I think part of the project of that show was to do something even more, uh, you know, serious and didactic than the usual level of of star trek self-seriousness and and didacticism uh from the next gener- the next generation but um i i mean but th- there isn't wh- what there isn't is a level of glee in that 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 you that you can kind of imagine in in i drink your milkshake also you know daniel day lewis wins all kinds of awards and you know is is uh uh, but uh, but those are I mean those are market forces at work. I don't know, Pete. I I can sense you wanting to jump in here. Oh, just because yeah, our spidey senses like we've we've synchronized. We've been together for so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things about oh, I was, first I was going to say that that uh, that uh, Daniel Day Lewis actually studied with an artisanal Italian milkshake maker But I think another big thing to mention about like particularly the sort of high-pitched moments is whether or not they're earned, right? Like, and, and that sort of implies a run-up. So the, the best, like, the best overactors, I'm just, because I think consider overacting generally to be a good thing. Uh, but no, like, the overactors who earn my respect the most for just shamelessly overacting are the ones who just do it, like, zero to 60, like, right out of the blocks with, with no, okay, we're going to have, like, a, 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 an ascent and some rising action and then a climax and then a denouement, and it's just like, what are you doing? And they're just yelling, like, as soon as they show up. For example. Um, well, like, so what are some good... Well, I mean, you know, Shatner is probably the classic Nicolas example. Nicholas Cage is a great example. Thank you. We once again go back to the Grace. Thank you so much. The Grace movie uh, ever made that was sponsored by Yogi Lemon Throat Coatee, which is Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Nicholas Cage is a great example of somebody who just comes right out of the blocks. Christopher Walken can come right out of the blocks. And, like, convincing yourself and convincing the filmmaker that this is what you need to show, like, right at the beginning of the movie, right, is like... which is 
also why it's so great to see like super villainous scenes just right at the beginning of a movie before anything else has been established because it's like you know what we don't care about rising action here's some climax for you take it and like it you know like uh, Alfred Molina is good at it when he needs to be uh, but he also has this sort of sense of subtlety that gets in the way of true excellence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think if you if you want to watch Alfred Merlina on the slow build, do check out Roger and Valor just getting in because that is like so slow, absolutely yeah. slow build. Um, and if you have no interest in that sort of thing, check out Tomb Raider 2, The Cradle of Life, where he is <laughs> entirely different character. But anyway... <laughs> He yeah he wins kind of the high low award at least this morning as I you know as I think of it the the uh, just jumping from high to low culture with no with no discernible run up right yeah I mean he was in Maverick right he was the the, the Spaniard right and uh, he's Doc Ock in Spider Man Two God bless him and yeah he's 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 up there I mean he, and he owns every performance too right I mean I've never seen him not just become that character well you, okay so so okay so now now here's aha a new term has been introduced into the conversation right like becoming becoming the character right which is a good thing right yes yeah and right and and so another instance of bad acting is is when we see we see an actor what kind of evincing their own personality instead of what we imagine the the character's personality is and the 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 glorious example of this i think is al pacino right who in so many of his roles is so clearly al pacino um you know al pacino is an absentee landlord uh, yeah, I mean, it might depend on the movie, though. Again, if we're talking about context, where should we expect certain levels of acting? Because there's whole movie careers built around the idea that one can just play out one's own character. And if you put that in the right kind of setting and with the right backup team, that that will be, I hesitate to say entertaining. Oh, no, no, I've got contaminated. Anyway, um, but, you know, like uh, Hugh Grant or uh, Russell Rogen. Brand. Those are British examples. There must be American examples. Yeah, Seth Rogen. Oh, Jason, yeah. yeah Jason. Oh, he's not American. He's Canadian, right? <laughs> Jason Zach Nicholson. Uh, sure. I mean, like, like any of these people that, that said though, like the idea of just being yourself is, is kind of deserves to be interrogated a little bit because if you've ever just like, um, you know, pointed a camera at some of your entertaining friends, some of the people you find sort of most diverting and charming in real life, uh, I venture to say that nine times out of ten, the, the results were not charming or compelling uh, and were, in fact, like, highly self-conscious. So this whole idea of, like, these things are sort of very carefully constructed, uh, even when it's just, oh, he's just being he's just being himself. I mean, you know, he's just sort of deploying version, uh, you know, aspects of himself in, in a way that happens to be uh highly marketable um rather than just sort of being himself which i promise you is not good television well yeah i was reminded earlier when we were talking about uh the dead watching the living uh i did catch a bit of the only ways essex earlier today mm. uh our, our our jersey shore because we want to own that <laughs> uh it's a cultural phenomenon and a force but there is very much because it's this recreating things that then did previously happen they have that unreality and banality all mixed up into one happy package and you know these are not professional actors Uh, i don't think they were even unprofessional actors and so yeah you can see that very clearly there that they are not being very naturalistic but neither are they returning kind of via the circuitous route you have to go further away from yourself to become natural it would seem Mm. and own the character and if you're in that limbo state that's when bad acting seems to be happening close as 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 a native new jerseyan let me just say that uh we fought the battle of monmouth to make sure that the british didn't own the jersey shore (laughs) 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 so i mean i don't necessarily think we won (laughs) i have to look it up we lost most of those battles and our actions in new jersey were generally uh, a pretty orderly retreat is what i would say uh followed by a series of late night traitorous backstabs but uh but you know what like so you're saying that the people of new jersey during the uh, american revolution were born to run 
<laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that we that we gave Thomas Gage a bit of a situation. To do. <laughs> I mean, if we want to talk more about the revolution in New Jersey history, we can go down that rabbit hole. But uh, I'm not sure that's something. I mean, once we talk about Molly Pitcher, that's pretty much it. <laughs> like that's that's where it goes. So, and she's not getting a reality show anytime soon. They found out that she just serves the water and doesn't do anything else with it. So. <laughs> I don't, Pete. You haven't you haven't weighed in uh, nearly as much as I thought you would about the uh, about the acting. Being a you know being an, a theater artist yourself. Oh, I'm enjoying this. Um, I, I think I'm enjoying listening to everybody else's take. I think in terms of becoming the character, uh, I mean that's tricky, right? Like it's tough because you can't really become the character, right? Um, you can't actually be that person. The person may not actually be real. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know that's kind of a silly pedantic way of putting it, but. Um, uh, I, you know that I tend to be in these conversations a little bit, a little bit anti-method, I guess, a little bit sort of anti-psychological drama, just for the sake of being a little bit subversive. But this idea that an acting performance isn't just a, rep- a representation of a person, but is also a way of communicating information, uh, and as such, and in more of, I know that sounds kind of clinical and artistic, but the human body is a tool for communicating signs and signifiers. In addition to also doing all its awesome things like farting or like escape <laughs> or street losing, uh, which is pretty much the top four. And biking, planking, planking. That's a good one, actually. Okay, so the top five things that the human body does: street losing, planking, farting. Uh, Farting and communicating information through a series of physical and verbal signifiers. I mean, what did Derrida have to say about all of the other topics? That's what I'm interested in. Oh, this is too extreme for Derrida. I didn't really. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't like a Sunapal McTwist, you know? Like... <laughs> um, but yeah, but, but so, I mean, you know, a good example, a part that I like to bring up in these kinds of circumstances, and I'll ask you guys about this, is the Gene Wilder performance in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Now, one interesting thing I read this, this week, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this kicking around on, on uh, Letters of Note, which is a wonderful site that publishes letters people have written to each other, is that it published a bunch of, of demands that Gene Wilder made or like suggestions he made for how his character was going to be handled in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? You, you, uh, Gabriel, did you read this? Yeah, I saw that. Um, yeah, I've, I've read bits of it too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so the first thing he says is he describes very specifically that he wants to walk in with a cane, right, like hobbled, so that everybody notices that he's hobbled. Then he wants the cane to get stuck in a cobblestone. Then he wants to keep walking, not realizing that he doesn't have his cane. Then he wants to realize he doesn't have his cane, fall over, right? And then when that happens, bounce up into a somersault and stand up. Which is a and glorious, I mean, if you remember that, watching that scene the first time, it's, it's glorious. It has a high level of gloriousness. Exactly, exactly. And he said in the note where, or where he expressed this is, I want to do this because from that point in the movie onward, no one will be able to tell whether I'm lying or telling the truth. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing for an actor to say, especially if the actor is the kind who is quintessentially interested in truth and sort of sort of a Val Kilmer-esque actor, right, who's like, I am going to get into the heart of Batman and bring him out and show him to the world like I did for uh, for Jim Morrison, right? Like, um, and this vision quest. Like I did for Iceman, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jinx. But most of his letter is like, I want a blue band on my hat that matches my eyes. I want a, a suit that's tailored for somebody like me and not someone thinner, like the one that you've noted. Like, I want to look good, right? And so, and that's kind of interesting that he's he's interested in these things. That's part of acting, too, to a degree, right? Is uh, not just looking good in the sense of, like, not wanting to look bad and wanting social approval, but just, like, uh, the presentation of the human figure, right? Like, as a, as a visual artwork, is something that actors are concerned with because all actors are models as well as actors to one degree or another, right? They're modeling their circumstances. They're modeling the clothes that they're wearing. Um, I mean, I guess Grotowski would have a problem with that, right? Um, and the poor theater, all that other stuff. But I, I don't know, whatever. I don't, he walks the catwalk like anyone else, right? Like, he was a little on the catwalk. Invoke said Fred against Grotowski. But anyway, sorry, I'm rambling nonsensically here. Uh, the main point I was just trying to bring up is I was trying to bring up bad acting situations where people aren't trying to approximate a person but are instead exploring their bodies and their voices and showing you weird things that their bodies and voices are capable of doing i think this is what nicholas cage does like if you watch um 
some of his scenes where he really freaks out, it's, he's pushing his, his tools past their limits of credibility, right? And into this sort of strange place where they become inhuman. This goes back to what Tim was talking about with alienation uh, and then hyper-reality and sort of people mapped on people. So it all comes together. So, Good. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. The only reason I thought about kind of hyper-reality is because of um, this idea from the neuroscientist Ramachandran that exaggerated features are more stimulating than realistic features. So once you exaggerate something, even when it stops being realistic, a brain, a really primitive brain, on up through to the human brain will react to it. And his idea is, well, maybe this is why we like art, because it is the extreme of reality. And because reality is stimulating, anything that's extreme, even though it becomes less real is detected as being more stimulating. Um, So that's kind of where that idea originally came from. So I guess when it comes to, you know, Nicolas Cage, he's like a human, but he's also (laughs) gone beyond that. He's more human than human, is how the song goes, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's almost a spirit, almost. It's like a spirit of vengeance. You guys, yeah. you guys got to step up. You know, I'm not gonna. If I just keep talking, we're not gonna have a guest panel. So, like, uh, you know, this is this is a test. How do you guys? This is your other th- test as an overthinker. Your first one was okay. Tim's seen something you haven't seen. You need to talk with them about it. And the second one is Fens with us went off on five minutes for five minutes on something you don't entirely understand because you're not sure he's making sense. How do you follow it up? <laughs> These are like the basic tools for our podcast. This is sort of our bread and butter, meat and potatoes. The role the role of guests on this podcast uh, on this podcast, Pete, is to is more to bear witness. You know, is more to bear witness to the rent. Than you know, than to uh, than to join in the ranting themselves. No, that's that's not. We welcome rants from. I, I, from all I, I our mean, guests. if you guys are you know teaching us all the secrets here and like the Masonic initiation, like what degree do we have to reach before we get the Harvey Firestein level? <laughs> <laughs> you can you can uh, you can do Harvey Firestein's voice when you can take this pebble from my hand. <laughs> uh, or should I say, take this pebble front? No, no, oh no! Stop it! Stop the hate mail! Make it, um, make it stop. Harvey Firestein, another one who seems more human than human oh. a lot, of, a lot of the time, and I think like actually sort of performing in drag with a very kind of campy exaggeration of 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 features, right? Like as part of his whole shtick. Well, oh yeah, I mean, drag, though. I mean, like in Independence Day, he he has that little role as uh, Jeff Goldblum's boss, right? Yeah. Oh my god. And uh no, I think that he actually he doesn't need to be in the drag to still express that. Mm-hmm. So as Derrida would say, Harvey Firestein is always already in drag. Yeah. <laughs> it's like meta drag or something. I mean, <laughs> drag is the perfect example really of hyper real more human than human because the principle of drag i suppose is to be more womanly than woman and there's a great uh, documentary show that i don't know if any american can find where the comedian rod gilbert has to become a drag artist but first he goes to a place that makes people womanly in a realistic and i'm doing the air quotes there but it's a podcast audio medium um realistic woman kind of transgender style trying it out stuff apparently there's a place you can do that in england is docu is documentary show the the posh british way of saying reality show uh no (laughs) (laughs) he said his voice dripping with colonial condescension that we have we do have the reality show the reality show i guess is where a bunch of non-famous people do something uh, in a pseudo-real setting. In a way, a documentary film is more real because it's someone investigates something. And this is admittedly a comic documentary, which is a whole kind of category of its own. But I don't think it's a reality show. But maybe it is, and my definitions are just weak. My idea of a reality show is something like, I guess, Big Brother, where really the situation is artificial and it has to simulate reality. Whereas a documentary is going to look at something real. Uh, mm-hmm. 
but there ca- there are cameras there. I mean, we, since we brought up Jacques Derrida in this, I mean, in this discussion, I suppose we have always already problematized the whole idea of the, you know, the stable base upon which we can build, uh, you know, our our conception of reality, the uh, the dream of full presence, the uh, the origin and the end of the game. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, one way one way to think about reality shows too is. Um, not from the point of view of the viewer, but the point of view of the producer, right? Because I think the biggest difference between a reality show and another kind of show is the way that it's made in terms of having predators rather than writers, right? Like, um, by which I refer to aliens that come down to hunt us for sport. But no, like the idea of having like the, the, the producer editors who uh, form the story through that whole process and specifically how these people aren't unionized as much. And at least in the United States, the, I think reality shows are kind of a cost structure as much as they are a genre of entertainment. Mm, um, but I don't know. It's, I don't know. Matt, Matt, Matt being, of course, at the forefront of the business, like in the beating heart of America's entertainment industry, could probably describe it better than I can. Or maybe not. Truly, yeah, pro- prob- probably, <laughs> probably, perhaps, maybe. <laughs> awesome. What the, has the- anyone seen Act of Valor? I didn't see Act of Valor, but did anybody see that reality show? <laughs> That's not a reality show, right? That was just uh, like I, I, I saw it. Oh, you saw it? Did you see it on on duty, or did you see it for entertainment? Uh, I saw it for entertainment. Uh, we went, oh, okay. went to the movie theater and saw it. It was it was good. I mean, but it's. You you can it, it, that is kind of an interesting intersection of you know acting and not acting because the the people are essentially playing themselves in this situation. Um, so the the exposition scenes are very obviously okay. We put a bunch of military guys in a room and ask them to you know pretend to talk about some geopolitical situation. Um, but then of course the action scenes where they're running through houses and things like that that's of course very very good because that's what they do for a living. Right, right, okay. right. Because it was, up, yeah, I was going to say it was very much slated here in Britain, um, especially as I think the problem was the setting didn't translate well to people who weren't uh, part of the same nation state, i.e., British people being a touch more cynical and whatever about the American military in that context. But whether that affects their acting as it were and their reality does it seem less real if you're not on that team as it were and i use that really kind of flippantly and i apologize no 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 worries it's it's uh apparently apparently the it started out as they were just going to train these guys train they were going to film these guys training and turned it into like a recruitment video of look at all this awesome stuff we're doing and then they eventually got the budget or the permission or whatever it was and they decided Hey, let's actually make this into a movie. We'll add a we'll add a narrative structure around these big set pieces where we're shooting up houses and things like that. And so then they had the actual seals doing the the acting and the exposition scenes. Um, and so that, that that kind of shows that they they clearly they wanted to do the big action set pieces, and then the middle parts are just to try and give it some tone and things like that. I think this raises two interesting questions, right? One of them is of acting performances where the actor is doing something very realistically and other things terribly unrealistically, especially if the thing that they're doing realistically is like kind of sideways, sort of like Jim Cotta, right? Where you have the Olympic gymnast who is fighting, <laughs> who's like fighting in these evil people and this like challenge on this island to try to like win whatever strange things happening. And he's like really great at pommel horse. So they throw in a lot of hyper real pommel horse action into the movie, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, and he uses it as a martial art and it's, but it is real. It's authentic in the sense that he does this professionally, but the scenes where he actually has to talk or the scenes that relay sort of information are, are entirely don't ring true at all. And then the other the other half I would bring up is move, things that – like, reality is crazy. You know, like, the, like, what happens in reality is insane. Like, if you actually took all the people you ran into in, like, an office building over the course of a day, like, maybe a third of them would make credible fictional characters, right? Like, two-thirds of them are just way too far off base to ever watch, like, for the sake of entertainment. At least that's my impression, right, is that, like, people are really eccentric and weird and, like, you know, they don't look – the way that, that idealized people look, they don't talk that way or walk that way. They have all sorts of weird mannerisms. So the question is, you know, is reality what, in this sense, in the reality and entertainment dependent upon our expectations for what is real more than a correspondent 
uh, relationship with an authentically represented reality. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so, so both of those two things are sort of open questions, right? Like sort of partial authenticity and then also sort of perceptional authenticity. Right. Um, so, yeah. And how does I, this, you know, you know relate I, to stuff? I, you know, go for it. I can actually stick in some a personal anecdote here without, hopefully without uh, pitching myself too much. But uh, so in 2009, I was on a deployment. We were, we did this counter piracy ops. We were catching Somali pirates, which is in itself a, you know, strange world as you were saying it's it's a strange strange world out there and somali pirates are no exception um and we had a camera crew a navy camera crew um that filmed a lot of it for intelligence and pr and things like that um but then after the fact well not not completely after the fact but a, a month or two into this spike tv decided they wanted to make a show about u.s navy pirate hunters and so on the way home from that deployment, they sent a camera crew out to do interviews and things like that, which they then combined into their show, U.S. Navy Pirate Hunters. But, of course, the show is presented as all of this is happening contemporaneously. Um, so I kind of had to play myself at various times. They were shooting B-roll of us putting on our gear and things like that. And so it was very strange having to – I was representing myself, you know, Lieutenant J.G. Ben Adams – but at the same time, having to act as I act out whatever I was doing a couple months ago. And it was, it was all very kind of representational. It wasn't, oh, try to remember what you did, but, well, we need to get this bit of exposition out, so we need, you need to talk about this. Um, uh-huh. Wow, I'm putting out, yeah, I'm gearing up now for our, you know, for our nighttime raid. Man, these, yes. uh, you know, these night vision goggles are tight. Exactly. I, I, I guess we have a topic for the next overview, right? <laughs> Commenting on your... That's like R. Kelly's commentary on Trapped in the Closet, where he's like, this is where I have a Beretta and come out of the closet. <laughs> and the guy's like, I have a Beretta, I came out of the closet. It's like, that, I just did that. That's right. Was it... Uh, and, and it was shown on, it was shown on Spike, your, your, uh, your show? Yeah, they were they were going to turn it into a series, and I think they realized that there wasn't there wasn't enough material there to to make a whole series out of. But they they turned it into a one hour. You can find it on YouTube, I think, actually. Oh wow! Uh, so Ben, I have to ask: in this reality show, did anybody say the quintessential line? I didn't come here to make friends. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. <laughs> I didn't come here to make friends. I came here to fight some pirates. <laughs> um, that, that's, uh, that's absolutely amazing. And I've, I mean, it's the, the sort of the military documentary show is, is an interesting one because there are like, there are a lot of, there are a lot of ones about like selection courses for U.S. Army Rangers or Navy SEALs or, you know, things, things like this that are on like, what is it, the National Geographic Channel or something like this, where there, there are a lot of these sort of U.S. military um, things. And it, it actually, I mean, it, it strikes me as fitting Tim's definition of a reality show and not of a documentary show, right? Which is that uh, a lot of people who, who aren't famous sort of show up in an arena to participate in a set of artificially constructed challenges, right? W- with the aim of certain of them sort of winning, which is to say advancing or passing, right? And, and certain of them um, uh, not. Um, so the, the uh, I mean, am I missing a crucial, am I missing a crucial thing that, that makes these, uh, uh, that makes these totally addictive, um, you know, uh, what are they called? Surviving the cut documentaries on the, uh, the reality on, on National Geographic uh, documentary and not reality programs? No, I, I think it's a pretty close analog because it, it, it's similar in the sense that you're taking something that's real and you have to narrativize it. You have to, you know, if you're going to follow the guys going through the Navy SEAL training or whatever, you need you need the tough kid off the streets and you need the admiral's son and you need the, you know, whoever else. Right. And that probably bears no relation to their internal lives, but it makes for a good story when, you know, they're friends at the end and go through graduation together or whatever the plot of the um the thing in question is sure i always and that's similar to you know real housewives or whatever any of those reality shows it's similar where they have to go back and graft the the story together from whatever footage they could get but i feel i i feel different i confess that i like i feel differently watching uh, one of those things let me let me um uh, let me uh 
bring up something else. I once saw on like Live with Regis and Kelly, a uh, there there was this whole thing about how Kelly was like a bad uh, home homemaker, housekeeper, couldn't make a bed, and so they had a like make a bed off, a make a bed competition between. Um, uh, Kelly Ripa and a, a woman who worked as a as a maid in a New York City hotel, right? And you, you know who clearly was the superior bedmaker and and uh, won the fifty dollar prize or something, you know, something like that. I felt very uncomfortable watching this from a variety of of political perspectives. I think because I, I was watching someone do something that actually had to do with their sort of job and economic livelihood uh, in a non, you know, I don't know, in a in a sort of non entertainment focused way and i felt the same way a little bit when it didn't stop me from from watching the whole series but like uh from watching these these uh sort of documentaries about um sort of training and selection courses in in the u.s military that is to say like it's not it's not a kind of it's not a kind of fear factor emotional intensity you know what i mean where like we all sort of go back to our real lives when this is done. It's like these these are these people's uh, real lives and their real careers. And, you know, the sort of the voyeuristic access to them that the the, the camera provides is, is something that uh, makes me feel a, a little squeamish, you know, as a person, uh, right, as a person consuming them in a way that I don't feel squeamish watching, I don't know, uh, watching Fear Factor, right, because they, they made their, their bed, right? So the closer to the documentary it is, I guess, the more uncomfortable you feel about it. The more complicit, was, right? That's interesting, because I guess the assumption is that in terms of art and value to humanity, the documentary is better. The reality is just entertainment. And hey, the producers can cheat. And I've heard a lot of stuff about you know the inside of reality shows. There's lots of stuff done by, stuff done by the production staff to throw the participants off guard and to affect their emotional reactions whereas a documentary should just be portraying what is okay maybe narrativizing it um but yeah sorry go ahead um, i'm a fan of the british show top gear and why uh, oh no Well, so at one point they came to the states and got in trouble for uh, various things, and you know they'd like to bash. They sometimes bash American cars, so they were banned from coming. And their loophole for coming back was they had to be strictly educative in what they were doing, so they couldn't be entertaining, right? And so then in the episode where they come back, they like totally mock that. Oh, don't be funny, and they like have the screen go black and say edit it out for purposes of appeasing the. Uh, customs or whoever it was that told them they couldn't come unless they were doing something educational and so like that show you know it's meant to be informative and entertaining right but then uh their way of getting around thing things to film in the U- u.s again was to pretend not to be entertaining and like once they started laughing, they ha- they would shut each other up in a very mocking sort of way, and that, I guess that episode kind of straddles that line very clearly because of that. Yeah, I guess I would consider Top Gear totally entertainment, and the fact that they might tell you a fact about a car occasionally—it's really three guys doing off-color jokes and driving about a bit. <laughs> um, the uh, sure top (laughs) everyone's like sputtering everybody's sputtering i I think that is kind of funny it's like you can come and do your entertainment show providing that you're not entertaining like we we, we as the customs department welcome you to fail here you come here as long as you fail like you're allowed to portray this this reality of you know on this film that is interesting that they would even care about the specific content of the show um, I mean, was there a demonstrable harm to the brands of the cars from the criticism that they were giving them? I mean, that's that's always the first thing that I go to is like, well, someone's talking smack, but does it actually matter? You know, and that's well, that's you know. I mean, I haven't heard anything good about the American car industry recently. Was this pre the need for a bailout? Uh, um, you know, I can't remember. I mean, because Top Gear is such a huge global brand. It's, I mean, the reason it keeps going is because it makes the BBC, like, so much money. 
Right, um, right. Yeah, no, that like their I know that their audience uh, showing or whatever is like sold out for the next like six years and like that. Um, yeah, half a billion I, people watch it or something. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm like you know, and, maybe I'm, it is demonstrable harm. Video. But no, I think it I think it was free because uh, I remember in the episode where they come back and are making fun of this whole thing. Uh, they were each driving a muscle car from the states, and the the new Dodge Avenger was one of the ones that they were using. And I think it wasn't that that was pre bailout, so I think it was before all that crap happened. Well, the bailout doesn't really have to do with the quality of the cars as much as the debt structuring of the companies, but we don't necessarily have to get into that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see a popular episode that discussed that, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. If I could do a good Jeremy Clarkson impersonation, then did they yeah, do? I would. Like this is what GM, GMA, GMC, GMAC is, and like this is how the financing arm works, and this is how it works to like to pay off the affiliates and the parts companies. I just love how you're like, oh yeah, the American car companies, psh, but Top Gear is a global brand. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> Or just not. Uh, to, I'd like to see. That'd be kind of funny. Like I'm in Japan, driving my Mitsubishi, listening to Top Gear, and someone's like, "Yeah, I just got a Chevy," and you're like, "What? <laughs> what is that?" <laughs> <laughs> and and also, I I just Dodge Avenger. Like the na- the car naming deserves a whole overthinking a podcast. Oh uh, yeah. Well, and the, the, those those Dodge ads, right? With um. What's his name from Dexter doing the narration? Oh, Michael C. Hall, Man's yeah. Last Stand, etc. Yeah. I love those ads. Didn't you guys talk about it on the Super Bowl podcast like two years ago? Oh, yeah. The car company ads are always great for that sort of thing because they're, they're definitely playing off of our deep insecurities. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it, it was halftime in America. Now I suppose we're, we're you know, deep into the second half. <laughs> at some point lebron james is going to start playing right the- <laughs> <laughs> um, i did well um this has been a uh fantastic conversation and a great uh way to inaugurate the new tradition of uh commenter panels which we will bring back periodically so it it remains uh only to thank uh timothy swan thank you sir Oh, it's been a pleasure as Thank always. Thank G- uh, Gab. <laughs> Gabrielle Arrowwood. <laughs> Thank you, Gab. No problem. And thank official U.S. Navy pirate hunter. <laughs> ben Adams, who didn't come here to make friends. He came here to fight some pirates. Uh, yo-ho, Ben Adams. Arr. <laughs> uh, and uh, Pete Fenzel and Mark Lee. Uh, Overthinking Podcast will be back next week. You can find us um, all the usual ways by emailing podcast at overthinkingit.com, by calling or texting 203-285-6401, or leaving a comment on the show notes and joining the discussion that way on the show notes for this episode. Uh, until next week, you can find us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny... It probably doesn't deserve. I didn't come here to make friends. Here's your here's your challenge. You have to say something now that's both funny and entertaining and fun. All those things at once. I mean, Go. it helps to visualize the music. That's what you've really got to do. Uh, the secret is that that's put in post production, guys. Oh, <laughs> like this isn't a documentary. It's like, a reality show. We've manipulated it. Yes, we've oh. manipulated it to make us sound dumber. <laughs> I guess my question is: Are those milkshakes vegan? <laughs> They bring all the vegans to the yard, if that's good enough. (laughs) I drink your milkshake.